All right, grab your Bibles. And turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And we'll begin at verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. (coughs) Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break down their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make with the inhabitants of the land a covenant. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread. As I commanded you at the time I appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb were mine. Your male's livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem with it, you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat of the harvest, the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year your males shall appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer anything, uh, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Lord, (coughs) we hear the words of this law that you give to your people. And even though we are now both culturally and spiritually removed from the circumstances and the 
um, direct authority of this particular set of laws, we know that they still do speak to us today. And that we can learn from what you said to your old covenant people in that day. And that we might be informed and enlightened as people of the new covenant. So teach us, Lord, through these words. Fill us with your spirit and give us insight, understanding, and a mind to follow you, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, at the end of um, the section from last week, <clears throat> God had um, reiterated, reaffirmed the fact that, that Israel, the Jews, were God's covenant people. And that they were going to be his people and he would be their God. That is covenantal language all the way through the Bible. So anywhere we go, basically from Genesis chapter 15, even earlier, even Genesis chapter 9, we find similar language with Noah. And all the way through to the end at the book of Revelation in 21, we find that as the new covenant people find themselves in the new heavens and new earth, that God even there says, I am your God and you will be my people. And so this covenantal language of the people being gods and God himself being their God <clears throat> is consistent all throughout. But that in and of itself is not an end. It is what God does in order to make a people his own by establishing and making a covenant with them. But from there, he does give laws and he does give regulations. Um, things for us to follow, to do, to obey. If we are his people, then we should look like his people, act like his people, and sound like his people. It's interesting that many, all religions in some way, shape, or form have a form of law, obedience, things that they follow and do. Uh, typically, in most other religious systems, that you follow these laws in order to be a part of that particular group. Christianity is unique in that we do not believe that you need to follow laws in order to be a Christian. Instead, trust in Jesus Christ, faith in him and his finished work of the on the cross of redemption. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for your sake are the things that make us Christians. We have been because of the belief in those truths we know been born again. We've been born as citizens of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And now, as being born as citizens of the kingdom of God, we certainly do have things to follow, rules to obey. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15 that if you want fullness of joy, then follow his commandments. His commandments aren't burdensome, but they are still there nonetheless. And so we see that as most other religions obey in order to be included, we obey because we've been included. Very different mindset, very different perspective. I don't believe I'm going to earn my righteousness by obedience <clears throat> as I trust or as I follow God's ways. 
Whereas other religions, that's exactly what you have to do if you're going to be included. So as we come to this text here, we see that, yes, there are laws and rules even the old covenant people had to follow, but it doesn't come before they have been adopted into the kingdom. Or we might say, to use old covenant language, that God has made his covenant with them. But once he has made his covenant with them, now we have here a list of rules for them to follow. Now, <clears throat> some have said, kind of skeptically and critically, <clears throat> well, God saw the Ten Commandments were just too much for them. Too hard, too difficult. So what he does here is he gives a new form of the law that's a little bit of a lower barrier for the people of Israel. It's a little bit easier for them to follow. There, there's a little more wiggle room, if you will, in this particular law here. Now that skeptic and critical idea of understanding the Old Testament is understandable if you come to the Bible from a worldly mindset. <laughs> if you come to the Bible with a fallen sense of right and wrong and try to impose your own logic on Scripture... But the reality is, is this isn't any more um, easier for them to follow. They still are going to fail all of this. <laughs> Every single one of these things he brings up, sooner or later they're going to fail in and they're going to sin in. Really, what we have here isn't a reiteration or even a dumbing down, if you will, of the Ten Commandments, but instead what God is doing is he's giving them specific commands that are based in his covenant, and remember, based in the character that he just declared about himself. And if we want to break these down, they break down nicely into four different categories. Verses 11 through 16, pardon me, 17, have to do with the holiness of his people. 18 through 20 have to do with redemption. 21 through 24 have to deal with celebration or thanksgiving. And 25 through 26 have to deal with our worship or their ways they were to specifically worship. <clears throat> so first of all, we come to their holiness. The nation of Israel was to be a holy people, holy unto the Lord. Now the word holy just means separate, distinct, unique. So categorically, the people of Israel are separate from all of the rest of the people's of the world, of the nations around them. In fact, so much so that they were supposed to go in and drive out all of the other nations from the land that God was giving them. They're to observe and to follow this command that as God drives them out, they need to take care that they don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And he says this twice, just in uh, these few five verses here. <clears throat> don't make a covenant with the people of the land. A covenant, when God says, I make a covenant with you, I will be your God, you will be my people, he's creating a connection. He's binding himself together with these people. Their reputation is his reputation, and his reputation is theirs. He is their God, but they are indeed his people, and they will experience the blessings, the delights, the joys of being God or having God as their God. 
What God is telling the Jews here is to don't communicate to these nations that you're to drive out that they're okay with me by making a covenant with them. In going and making a covenant with them, they would have demonstrated, yeah, God is our God, and now he gets to be your God too. So you're okay with God. God is okay with you. When in fact, he wasn't at all. He was ready to drive them out because to use his own language from Genesis 15, their sins had finally been filled up. And because their sins had finally been filled up, it was time, according to God's justice, to drive them out of the land. And so if the Jews did come along and <coughs> make a covenant, they would end up being a problem for God and for God's people for a long, long time. This indeed does happen in Joshua. You'll remember that as Joshua's coming in and conquering many, many, many of these peoples, that there was a town that said, you know what, we got to figure this out. They're going to wipe us out. And so you remember they put on old rugged garments and they gathered together some moldy bread and stuff. And, and they came to Joshua and said, oh, man, we've heard the fame of you, your God and how wonderful the things he's doing. And, and we just wanted to come and join with you and make a covenant with you <clears throat> because we've heard how wonderful. And so Joshua foolishly makes a covenant with them and realizes it's just one of the next towns on the list that he's to destroy. But because he made this covenant, he did not to destroy them. And we find those very same people all throughout not only the book of Judges, but the books of First and Second Samuel and the book of Kings being a problem for the nation of Israel and being a source of not only um, war and violence, but of idolatry and sinful practices. And so their failure to wipe out these people became a problem much later on. Here God says, don't do it. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses writes, Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his own great power, driving out before you the nations that were greater than you, that were mightier than yourselves, to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore and lay it to your heart that the Lord is in heaven above and the earth beneath and there is no other God. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his covenants which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. And so they're promised blessing if they were to obey. <clears throat> a promise that God will go before them, that they are to be, when they go into the land that is their inheritance, they're to be a people who are to be holy unto the Lord, conquering their enemies, conquering God's enemies. Another thing about the covenant, it is, is it is to be exclusive. We don't like that in our culture. We want things to be inclusive. But the reality is, is that God's covenant is exclusive. 
Because God is the one who makes the covenant. God is the one who chooses whom he will make the covenant with. The greater determines who he's going to covenant with. And God is the determiner of that fact. God chooses the nation of Israel. And he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that it wasn't because they were greater or mightier. In fact, all of these other nations here, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, were all greater than Israel. Greater in power, greater in wealth, clearly greater in possessions because they actually had the land. <coughs> but God is not interested in those kind of things. God chose Israel simply because he chose Israel. This is what God says, I chose you because I chose you to make my name great and to make me glorious. God is free to do that. God is God and we are not. And we don't want to take and impose categories on God that we can and rightly do take and impose upon other people. Whereas we might look at a, a, um, a despot, uh, we might look at a dictator and see them as being extremely arrogant for saying, no, I am the, I'm only going to do everything I'm going to do for my glory, and these are my people, and I'm going to do things my way, and we're going to, right? We, we hear arrogance in those words when they come out of the mouth of an individual. But not so with God. God is perfect and pure and merciful and gracious and righteous and true. We just looked at those attributes last week of his. And so we must allow God as he defines himself to us to be that God that he says he is and then think, oh, this is how he is. I shouldn't take my own fallen sense of right and wrong and impose that upon him. If God decides to be exclusive, then it's his right to do so. If God is exclusive, then it's his, he's doing it because it is right and good for him to do it. And so he says, don't make a covenant with the peoples of the land. Don't do it. Avoid them. Run them out. He goes so far as to say that you need to tear down their altars, break down their pillars, and cut down their ashram, because if they don't, they will be inclined to make a covenant with the people of the land. To tear down their idols, to tear down their ashram. Now, Asherim, we don't know exactly what that was. Uh, historically, there have been several um, things that have come up that seem to be Asherim. Probably there's something along the lines of a pillar that stood next to or nearby a pagan altar that functioned somehow as an exaltation of the god, whatever god it was. But they're to break down into the pillars and tear down these ashram. In Judges, we see that Gideon, <coughs> Gideon is called to do just that in chapter 6. Gideon, verse 25, it says, The night the Lord told him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, cut, that your father has and cut down the ashereth that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid, do in order, and take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering <clears throat> with the wood of the Asherah that you have cut down. 
So Gideon took ten men and his servants and did as the Lord commanded. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it by night. So he, we find here that in Judges, which takes place maybe a couple of hundred years after this instance with Moses, they're still dealing with the same problem because they were not faithful to do what God had called them to do here. And so this old <clears throat> idolatrous practice had infected and infiltrated the nation of Israel just as God said it would. Look what it says following. They're going to whore after the gods and sacrifice to those gods when you're invited to do it. You're going to eat their sacrifice. You're going to take of their daughters for your sons. And their daughters are going to whore after their gods and your sons are going to follow after that. It's exactly what we see happening. <clears throat> God knows our hearts. And as much as we want to think that we're strong spiritually, we're not. And you've probably experienced this yourself where, you know, you, you have friends who are unbelievers. And we maintain friendships with unbelievers, rightly so. We're, we're called to do that in the New Testament. But we need to beware that if we find, don't find ourselves becoming so friendly with them that we begin to adopt their practices and begin to act like them and talk like them, think like them, sing the songs they sing, tell the jokes that they tell and act the way that they do. And you know as well as I do how easy that is to fall into that trap. It doesn't take very long at all before we conform to their standards. Now, we might justify it and go, well, if I'm going to win them, I need to kind of know them and understand and act like them. The reality is, is, no, we need to be separate and distinct. We are Christians first and foremost. It's interesting how there is a phenomenon, I didn't know it had as a specific term, but that doesn't matter for right now, but that when missionaries, especially American missionaries, go overseas, sell everything they have here, go settle in whatever country that they're going to settle in, not only do they have a sense of culture shock, but oftentimes they find out that they were truly idolistic of the lifestyle, of the things that they have, because they are oftentimes is this idea, boy, I wish miss my big refrigerator. I can put so much more food in that. Why don't they have big refrigerators here? Oh man, I miss this particular aspect or this particular thing. And they end up finding after being there for a period of months that they really were so caught up in their culture that their culture had become an idol and they didn't even realize it. Personally, I experienced this when I went to Scotland and we were planning to go, you know, sell everything here and go be missionaries over there. When one of the first things I asked somebody <coughs> over there is, where's all your pickup trucks? Nobody has a pickup truck in UK or in Scotland. I shouldn't say UK, but in Scotland, nobody. I maybe saw two the entire time I was over there and it was like a weird thing. It stood out that there was a pickup truck. I look out here and, you know, Mike's got one and I could have driven mine. I think, you know, there's probably, you know, 10 pickup trucks represented somehow by this room here in some way, shape or form. And, and I said, <coughs> what if you have to move something? What if you have to do a dump run? 
And the guy who was there in Scotland goes, oh, we manage. And my thought was, well, why manage? Why not just get a truck and then you have what you need? And it exposed, in my own thinking, my own American way of thinking, my own idolatry. Convenience. Ease. Why just manage when you could have? What am I demonstrating? That I have a covetous heart. And Colossians tells us that covetousness is idolatry. It's the same thing. And so here, when we see God saying, don't make a covenant with the peoples of the land because they're going to worship their idols and you're going to get sucked into it, he's saying, your heart is covetous. Your heart is desiring of the things that are an idol. And so he has to, at the very end of this passage, literally say the words, and don't make an idol. (laughs) Don't carve yourself one. Don't make one. If you didn't understand everything else I just said in this paragraph, just don't do it. (laughs) In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of bodily, body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Paul uses the exact same language that Moses is receiving from God. You hear the covenantal language in the quote, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And Paul quotes this here in 2 Corinthians because he wants the Corinthians to know you are just as susceptible to idol worship as any of the old covenant people were. So therefore, be holy. Set yourself apart from the ways of the world. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or fellowship light with darkness. And again, he's not saying don't have any unbelieving friends. Just completely, you know what we need to be is monastic. Let's just go build a monastery up in the foothills somewhere and we'll all go live there as if that would solve all our problems. No, that's not what his point is. His point is not we should have no friends, but that we shouldn't unite ourselves to them in a way that we're communicating. We agree with the lifestyle, the way, and all of the actions that they are committing and performing. 
We need to be God's people and distinct from the world. So as Christians, what does this look like? Well, it looks like this. We cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So I want to be holy. I want to cleanse myself from the worldly practices that are inclined to communicate that I'm okay with the worldly idolatry or that I am united with the world in its ways and its means in some sense. So holiness, first of all, God calls us to. Secondly, God reminds us of the fact that we are a redeemed people. They were a redeemed people. We are redeemed people. Verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your live, uh, male livestock, the firstborn of the cow and the sheep. The firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Feast of Passover. <clears throat> You'll remember, Passover was the ultimate event that ended up giving Israelites their freedom from Egypt. When God passed over the Israelites and killed all of the firstborn there in Egypt, that was the end of all of the plagues. And Pharaoh finally just dusted his hands off and said, get out, just, just go. Yeah, he went and chased them down and drowned in the river, um, but, or in the sea, but <coughs> this was the event that demonstrated God had redeemed his people. God had rescued his people. God had been faithful to his word. And their continual feast of the unleavened bread demonstrates that God is the one who did indeed redeem them. <clears throat> They're to keep the feast at the same time when God did redeem the people of Israel in that month of Abib. Now, we don't celebrate Passover as Christians. But we look at that same time as a time where we are redeemed as well. Because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. Remember in John um, chapter 1, as the gospel begins, John the Baptist, who had been ministering in a fiery and powerful way there out in Galilee, looks and sees Jesus coming to him, and he says to all the people around him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's important there at that moment because the Pharisees had all just come out and asked John, Are you the Messiah? And he says, No, I'm not. And they're like, Well, what do we do with you? How, what, what do we do with this situation? And the very next day, Jesus comes out and John declares that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the symbolism is Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He is the one who redeemed them. <clears throat> the Passover Lamb that was killed in a symbolic way redeemed the Israelite inside the house. 
as they killed the lamb and they put the blood on the door of the house so that the angel would pass over. And then they partook of the lamb and ate of the lamb and ate of the whole thing there that night. That symbolized Jesus' coming for us and being our Passover lamb. And his blood is applied to us. Now, not literally, but spiritually we see that Christ is the one who did redeem us, who rescued us from our sins. And when we celebrate, when we, every time that we gather together here, you know we do it on Sunday because we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single Sunday we gather together, we're remembering his redemption in the very fact that we gather on this day as opposed to any other day that we could gather. Christ is our Passover lamb and he is the one who we celebrate each and every time. But there's even more that is important, I think, for us here. Verse 19, all that open the womb are mine. Are your male livestock, the firstborn of the cow, the sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck and all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem None shall appear before me empty-handed. God is the giver of life. Life happens because God ordains and decrees that it continues to happen. Every life. From our kids to the chickens I got in my backyard to little squirrels that run around our house that... You know, we just glimpse on occasion and, and everything in between. <clears throat> Jesus says that we're to look at the birds of the air and the nests that they have. We're to look to <clears throat> the flowers that grow out in the field and that they communicate to us that God loves life. That God is the giver of life. Now, I don't think I have to convince anyone in the room here that we should be, in the best sense, pro-life. <laughs> because God certainly is. He's the one who gives life. He is the one who loves life in creating life. We should rejoice in it. Even the life that he has given to us here under the old covenant needed to be redeemed, needed to be demonstrated that it was God's outwardly. It's interesting that Christ, even in his infancy, we find fulfilling this. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is brought to the temple on the eighth day, in order to be redeemed, being the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph being his stepdad, I guess, brought him to the temple in order to redeem him. It said that they needed to redeem him with a turtle dove, which meant they were poor. They didn't even have a sheep or a lamb in order to offer on Jesus' behalf. <clears throat> but even in Jesus's initial circumcision and redemption at eight days old, he still fulfilled God's covenant on our behalf. He still is perfectly obedient. He still is our exact representation and fulfiller of the law 
Even in his infancy, he fulfilled the law for us. Meaning that if he had not been redeemed in this way, this would have been a point that any of the Pharisees could have identified and said, well, wait a second, you weren't redeemed when you were eight days old. Therefore, you are not a valid mediator. You are not a valid savior of God's people. But Jesus, in fact, was. In every point, in every way, he is our perfect and great high priest, our perfect and great savior, our perfect and great redeemer. So he redeems us. And us seeing this passage here about the Feast of Unleavened Bread immediately should in our minds point us forward to Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled the law perfectly in every way, including in his infancy when he didn't really, I guess, have the wherewithal to go and do it. Being perfectly human, he was perfectly an infant, but yet born to those parents who God the Father knew would fulfill the law and go and obey the commandments that were given. So first of all, God calls his covenant people to holiness. Second, he calls them to be reminded of their redemption. Third of all, he he calls them to celebrate. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the wheat of the first fruits of wheat harvest, the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in a year you shall, and all your, your all your males shall appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you, enlarge your borders so that no one will cover your land, when you go to appear before the Lord God three times in the year. We might not be inclined initially to think about that God wants us to rejoice and celebrate. That God wants us to rest and have thanksgiving to the Lord. But a celebration is indeed what God calls us to. He called them to it here in that he's saying, you shall, number one, rest on the seventh day. Number two, celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And number three, Celebrate the ingathering at year's end. We look at these feasts and we see them as being the feasts of Pentecost there, the feast of first fruits that was fulfilled as the church was established, but also the feast of tabernacles or the feast of ingathering here. We looked at that extensively when we went through John and saw that by the time of Jesus, <coughs> that was the big celebration. That was their Christmas the Feast of Tabernacles, that week-long celebration reminding them of their wandering in the wilderness as they finished their harvest and then they rested and enjoyed each other's company as they lived in tents or booths for a week. But God wants us to be a people who celebrate, who rejoice. And he wants us to do it even when it seems from a worldly point of view to be inconvenient. Look what he says here. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Those are the times where you need to be out in the field the most. Plowing and harvest. I remember, and I don't know why I remember this, but it's 
one of the only things that jumps out of my mind when I think of Little House on the Prairie, that old TV show. And it's one of the earliest episodes. And they're, they have just built their house. And Pa <coughs> is out in the field plowing with uh, his horse. And uh, Ma is taking the little girls and going to church. And she yells out in the field, Charles, get yourself here again. We're going to church. And Charles says, no, nah, I got to plow this field. This field ain't going to plow itself. And Ma says, no, we're supposed to go to church. And he responds, no, God understands farmers. I'm going to plow this field. Well, yes, God understands farmers. He understands they're going to disobey the law in order to take care of what needs to be taken care of in the field. And God says, don't do that. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, seek first, first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. God says, seek him first. He knows what you need. He's perfectly aware that plowing and harvesting need to get done, and yet he says, spend a day in worship and rest celebrating me and my goodness and everything will be provided for you. And then he goes even further than just one day. He says during these times of harvest, during these times of planting, he's established two feasts. Now, in establishing these two feasts, we might be inclined to think, well, what if you're in Eastern, or, um, Eastern Manasseh? That's the furthest tribe away from Jerusalem. They're just going to stop what they're doing and take a week-long journey down to Jerusalem, celebrate the feast, then take a week-long journey back? Well, they're the furthest away from the capital, the furthest away from the temple, furthest away from the armies. <clears throat> what if somebody comes in, what if Syria comes in, and destroys my land or takes it. And I come home and there's a foreign army occupying my land. And I didn't do anything about it because I wasn't here for three weeks out of the year. Well, God here, look what he says. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. God's promised divine protection for his covenant people so that they would go and celebrate. Think about that. God says, I will protect your land. I will supernaturally wipe covetousness from the mind of the people and the nations that are around you so that you can go and enjoy yourself. So you can go and celebrate me. So you can go and rejoice. God cares about our well-being and our flourishing. He isn't interested in just a bunch of mindless slaves who are lacking in joy and pleasure in life because uh, we're just, oh, we're just doing our duty. We're wringing our hands because we've just got to always follow God and his ways. No, he wants us to rejoice and celebrate. And so he sets aside times for us to regularly do it because he knows we need it. He knows we need rest. He knows we need celebration. He knows we need to enjoy and rejoice in him. 
Now our feast, our regular celebration, we don't have, I mean, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, but we don't have any New Testament or apostolic mandate to celebrate those things. Not that we shouldn't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying let's just, you know, stop doing all that kind of stuff. But we do have a regular routine pattern, an apostolic command for us to follow. And it's coming together on the Lord's Day and worshiping Him and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, I I know so many people (laughs) who don't go to church on Sunday because they've got their kids' football game. They don't go to church on Sunday because... Oh, well, you know, I've got to be out in my garden and it's the only day during the week where I can go out there and take care of stuff or this or that or all kinds of things. I can't tell you how many times over the years when we met at 4 p.m. and I'm talking to people and trying to invite them to church or talking to them about church, I got the question, I'm no joke, at least 100 times, well, what do you do on Super Bowl Sunday? Isn't it funny that that's the thing people ask? You worship at 4 p.m.? That's the first place their mind goes. What do you do about the Super Bowl? Well, we worship. (laughs) Our God is in heaven. Our God is Christ. Our God is not a football or a stadium or a team or a league. Not that that is a wrong thing, but it certainly is an idol in many people's lives. And it's indicative that people give me that response. Now they don't anymore because we don't meet then. But they did for years and years and years. Our feast is to keep the Lord's Supper and worship Him on the Lord's Day. And it should be a rare and unusual thing that keeps us from that. We should be in the pattern and habit of regularly coming together and worshiping God and celebrating Him and trusting that the Lord is going to keep whatever it is that we're like, oh, but I gotta, He's going to keep that and He's going to give us the time, the strength, the ability to take care of it when we honor Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then all of these other things that you want. All of these other things that are necessary. All of these other things that you're supposed to do will be added to you. And so we trust the Lord in that. And lastly, worship. Verse 25 says, You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the, piece of pa- the feast of Passover remain until the morning. <clears throat> the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Here, they're given some specific instruction on how to worship the Lord. They're not to offer the blood of the sacrifice with anything unleavened. Leaven was a type of sin. And God gave the people in in the feast of Passover unleavened bread to eat to remind them of the haste necessary for them to get out of town once the Passover took place. Leaven takes time for it to rise. Yeast has to have its effect. 
And the unleavened bread reminded them that there wasn't time for them to get out of there. But in the Old Testament, leaven becomes a symbol for sin. Because it breaks down the bread. And so God here says, don't offer a holy sacrifice with something that is a symbol of sin. Don't commingle your worship. You don't have the privilege of deciding, oh, I can just offer any old bread I want before the Lord. So sourdough is fine bread. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> no, we are to worship God in the way he has prescribed. And he says, don't offer what is holy and what is not holy at the same time. We are reminded that we don't have the privilege of taking things that are holy and unholy and commingling them together during our time of worship. I saw this crazy video of a church that their entire, wasn't even a sermon, it was a skit with superheroes. And they were just doing superhero things and they were singing secular songs and doing these dance routines and stuff. And the, uh, the whole point was supposedly, you know, you can be a superhero for the Lord. And I'm watching this thing and it goes on and on. It was like, I don't know how long the skit was, but I watched it for at least 10 minutes and it was clearly just edited little pieces. So it had to have been at least a half hour long. And I just thought, man, they're offering the blood of the sacrifice with leavened bread. They're trying to co-mingle entertainment practices of the world with the worship of the true and living God. And it's just confusing. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. Not only is it cringy, but it's an offense. And we should be offended when we see God's holy worship commingled with the ways of the world. Don't let the feast of Passover remain until the morning. <clears throat> Again, we need to worship the way God prescribes us to worship. They were supposed to eat the entire feast and whatever was left, they're supposed to burn it. That they didn't leave it till the morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. We bring our selves to the Lord. We offer ourselves the first day of the week here on Sunday, offering our best as it will, our minds, our hearts, our strength, as we worship the Lord. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk is again an indication that the tendency would have been to adopt the practices of the nations that were already there and then bring them into their worship. This was a practice regularly that Baal worshipers did. That they would boil the goat, they would boil a sheep in its own mother's milk and they would offer it before these idols. And so here at the very end of all this, he's saying, when you worship, don't take the ways of the world, don't take these other practices, don't take these other, <coughs> these other nations and allow them to dictate to you how I'm to be worshipped. Instead, worship me the way I tell you to be worshipped. Don't do the things the world does, but do the things that I call you to do. So Christian... As we conclude here, first of all, you're in the kingdom of God because 
He chose to make a covenant with you. He brought you into his kingdom. You didn't follow laws or rules or ways in order to get into his kingdom. You are a part of his kingdom because he chose for you to be there. He called you. He brought you into his kingdom. He said, you are mine and I will be your God. And then from there, we see that the Lord has these wonderful things for us to follow and do. He calls us to be holy, separate from the world. We should look and sound and act like Christians, like God's people. We've been redeemed from the world. We've been redeemed from our sin. And we should rejoice and celebrate that redemption that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, it might cost us something in order to worship and celebrate, but the Lord said, seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. And then all these things will be added to you. And then as we do come and worship him, we don't want to take the world's ways and means and practice them, adopt them, try to incorporate them into our worship. No, we come to the Lord the way the Lord called us to with his way and his means. Praise God that he has saved us and called us to such a holy and delightful calling. Christian, the Lord loves you. And he doesn't call you to himself so that he might have a mindless slave. He calls you to himself so you, he might have a ready and willing rejoicer and worshiper of him. That we might delight in God and delight in his kingdom, delight in his presence, delight in his ways. And like the psalmist say, Lord, in your law, I find fullness of joy. Lord, we love you and we thank you that even as you've given us commandments to follow as Christians, they're not burdensome. They're not a yoke that we cannot bear, Lord, but instead <clears throat> it is a delight and joy to follow you. Lord, I pray that we would be a separate and holy people unto you, Lord, that we would follow your ways and that as we follow your ways, Lord, <clears throat> that'd be pleasing to you. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that we would seek first your kingdom. That we would look to you and for you in all things, Lord. And be mindful that you are our great God and worthy of all our praise. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.